Okay, Jimmy, the Metters will be here soon, and we go on the air in 30 minutes. I don't know if they're bringing the dogs today. Bitzilla and Teddy Kong caused a bit of a commotion last time. Or rather, you made a commotion with joy by using them. Nope. And can you blame me? You got your butt kicked by Dimagine and had to be saved by Jet Jaguar. What a storied life we all live. Now, for today's broadcast... A visitor? From the board? Hoo boy! I'm amazed Miss Perkins would come after... It's not? Then who is it? Mother trucker, my nose hairs are on fire! Oh, spare me your hysteria, Mr. Marchand. A yank such as yourself could never appreciate a manly musk such as the Baron. Says the guy who dresses like Matt Smith's doctor after he rolled around in an ash can. Seriously, man? A charcoal gray tweed jacket, brown loafers, John Lennon glasses, a beret, and biker gloves? Don't be daft. These are a driving hat and driving gloves. You have a car? Yes, a red Mini Cooper. It was given to me as a gift by my last employer. There are roads on Monster Island? Oh, why such numpty questions? Let's get on with it. Well, here's one more. Who the heck are you? Ah, yes. Now there's a question worth answering. My name is William H. George III Esquire. I am the very special envoy from the Monster Island Board of Directors. Oh, yeah. I've heard about you for months, especially from Captain Gordon. If I remember right, he calls you Little Man. Ugh, that spanner is the thickest person I've ever met. I told the board it was a mistake to hire that oaf in the first place. They insisted it was good for business, and of course, who am I to argue with good business? Next question. Why are you here? To deliver the board's latest press release for you to read on today's broadcast, of course. Don't ask such stupid questions. I was expecting Miss Perkins. She was a bit upset with you since you tried to interrogate her while dancing at the Gamera King of the Monsters banquet, so she asked me to bring you the press release in her stead. Oh, come on! Need I remind you, Mr. Marchand, the board was not pleased with your shenanigans. Consider yourself very lucky it only resulted in a mild concussion and an unexpected trip to the Japanese mainland in the Megalon crate. Take it from a Brit, you are no 007. More like a triple zero, if you ask me. You know James Bond is a terrible spy, right? How dare you! Mr. Bond is a British national treasure, you bloody plebe. <laughs> now, what am I announcing about the Guardian of the Universe today? Well, it's actually about a creature lovingly referred to as Clifford. As in the Big Red Dog? Yes, there is this tyrannical twit on Twitter who's been rabble-rousing about Clifford supposedly being a kaiju. I'll have you know that Travis from Kaiju Weekly is one of my friends, so... No, 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 it's not him. It's not him. Uh, we like Mr. Alexander. He's just a little bit too nice for our taste. Then who is it? Let me see. Oh, this guy. I used to work with him. He's a gatekeeper who rails against gatekeeping in the kaiju fandom by producing rambly hit pieces on his podcast. I guess he has nothing better to do with his life than be dogmatic about Clifford. Mr. Marchand, do refrain from such lowbrow humor in my presence. 
or what? I'll be punished. Now, as I was saying, the board intends to rebuff this troublemakers. How do you Americans say it? Fake news? Hmm. For once, I actually agree with the board on something. I'll gladly read this. Good. Because otherwise, well, your intrepid producer may not be around to retrieve you the next time you're expelled from Monster Island. <laughs> Duly noted. Cheerio, Mr. Marchand, and may you find a better way forward. Take care of yourself, James, and you too, Mr. Jaguar. The board is looking forward to listening in on today's broadcast. Yeah, I'm regretting going to that banquet more and more every day. Now the board's going to squeeze us even harder. If only I discovered their identities. Like you would have done any better. Yeah, yeah, storied life and many talents. Whatever. We'll figure something out later. Right now, we have a show to do. And, uh, Jet? Could you do something about the smell? Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is The Monster Island Film Vault, episode 34, The Misties vs. Camera vs. Baurugan. Hello! Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the film curator here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand. And joining me today as we continue the... Camera! Camera! Yes, welcome to part two of 12, unfortunately, of the Year of Gamera, as the song lets you know. Yeah, Jimmy, don't remind me. It's actually 13. But anyway, <clears throat> joining me today for this wonderful occasion are a couple more of my favorite people and some of the original guests here on the show, my friends and yours. Joe and Joy Matter. Hello, everyone, again. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we are without Teddy Kong and Bitzilla, for those yeah, of you who Yeah, I was were... wondering about that. I wasn't sure if they were coming or not. Well, we dropped them off on the other side of the island. Gamera decided to protect them from Jimmy, and Gamera and Teddy got along so well last time that they just go over at his house. Yeah, I mean, after all, we really don't want to repeat. Not that I'm afraid of a repeat, but, you know... There's more important things in life than kicking Jimmy's butt. I mean, wait. Yeah, I keep saying that. Hey, I already told him before the show that I'm not going to let him forget that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Jet. You're not letting him forget it either because you had to save his sorry butt. I'm still not sure why. <laughs> the uh, curators of the Monster Island the board of directors, so to speak, would have to find someone new that would annoy 
Nate as much as Jimmy, and that's hard to do. Well, that's true. And what if it's worse? Oh, shut up. Anyway, moving right along. (laughs) So the now king of the monsters, by order of the board, is dog sitting for you. That's interesting. Although he has told me he loves dogs. Not as much as kids, but he does love dogs. (laughs) Well, it's more of a friendship kind of thing than babysitting. And speaking of Gamera, as I've already mentioned, this is part two of 12 or 13, depending on how you want to count them, of the year of Gamera. You guys are joining me today to discuss Gamera versus Barugan, Baragon. No one can agree on uh, on how to say this monster's name. I've heard it pronounced about four different ways. It is Barugan. Who let him in here? Jimmy! Turn off the outside monster mic. I don't need interruptions from the kaiju, too. We've had that happen a couple of times. It's annoying. Also, when the frick did he learn how to talk? Oh, it's a poor orca translation. Got it. Pardon the interruption. Sorry about that. But as per board mandates, you guys get to watch the MST3K episode on this movie. And I have to watch the original Japanese cuts so we can compare notes. Yay. Woot, woot. <laughs> All right. Wooting young life. <laughs> <laughs> and then after we're done discussing the film, we'll get on to today's toku topic, which will be a nice little history lesson on the New Guinea campaign from World War II. Mm. Because that actually comes up in this movie. This time I didn't forget the toku topic. I had a bad habit of doing that for a while, as Jimmy has reminded me on various occasions. All right, so with that, to the screening room. Well, you get to go to the big one. I'm going to the side room. Wee! We get to see it in IMAX. Yay. Gamera is an animalistic and fierce force of nature. After a collision with a meteor frees him from the Z-Plan capsule, he returns to Earth in search of energy sources to consume, attacking the Karobe Dam and then going to feed on molten lava south of the equator. He is later attracted back to Japan by Barugan's rainbow beam, wherein he presumably challenges Barugan for dominance. Barugan is an aggressive and malicious giant reptile who hatches from an egg mistaken for a large opal. The superstitious natives fear him as a supernatural creature. They say he will menace Japan like he did the ancient New Guinea natives. He's given no motivation beyond this. Keisuke Harada, an ambitious but friendly pilot, agrees to go to New Guinea in search of a huge opal in his crippled brother Ichiro's stead. He later acts as Karin's guide in Japan and assists the JSDF in their operations against Barogan. The closest thing to a Kenny in this movie is Karen, the native girl assistant to Dr. Sato, a Japanese physician treating local diseases in New Guinea. She warns the outsiders of the dangers of the opal and later goes with Keisuke, with whom she's fallen in love, to retrieve the opal and later advises the JSDF in how to kill Baurgan. Onodera is an odious and greedy war buddy of Keisuke's brother, who agrees to go on the excursion for the opal, but intends to keep the treasure for himself. He kills Kawajiri and several people, and nearly murders Keisuke along the way, trying to keep the opal or save himself. 
While at first the human and kaiju plot lines are separate, once Barogon hatches from the so-called Opal, these plot lines are unified. Barogon, and to a lesser extent Gamera, become the primary motivators for the characters or the source of their troubles. While it was Gamera for a brief time, Barogon is the problem. The JSDF assault Barogon with tanks, missiles, and jets, but he wipes them all out. Gamera attacks Barogon at Osaka Castle, but Barogon freezes him with ice spray from his tongue. At Karin's recommendation, the JSDF implements Operation Diamond, which involves suspending a 5,000-carat diamond from a helicopter to lure Barogon to his death in Lake Biwa since water is his weakness. But Barogon ignores the diamond. The JSDF uses artificial horn to keep Barogon immobile while they make a new plan. They next magnify the diamond's brilliance with an infrared light and place it in a truck in another attempt to lure Barogon into the lake. The kaiju does follow the truck, but after the diamond is placed on a boat, Onodera boards the ship and steals the diamond after shooting a soldier. Barogon then eats Onodera and the diamond. The JSDF uses large mirrors to reflect Barogon's rainbow death ray back at him, but while successful, the wounds aren't enough to kill him, and Barogon won't fire the ray again. The problem is solved when Gamera thaws from the ice and flies to Lake Biwa, where he drags Barogon underwater to drown him. The script by Nissan Takahashi, while linear and straightforward, has a large cast and several related subplots, adding more complexity and melodrama compared to the previous Gamera movie. Thanks to the unexpected success of the first Gamera movie, this film was given twice the budget, 80 million yen, which upgraded it from a Class B to a Class A picture. Gamera's attack on the Korobai Dam is a particularly impressive spectacle of miniatures and suitmation. The cityscapes, particularly Osaka Tower, are incredibly detailed. The kaiju suits are expressive. The crew experimented with clever wipes to transition from unfrozen to frozen buildings. There are more extras in many shots and more location filming. Other techniques used included animation, pyrotechnics, and puppetry. Overall, the special effects directed by Noriaki Yuasa at points equal what Dae's rivals at Toho were producing in their kaiju and tokusatsu films, thereby giving this the best production values of the Showa Gamera series. This is a dark and often melodramatic film with a moderate amount of gravitas. With its ancient rainbow-shooting reptile, giant flying turtle, and superstitious natives, this is a fantasy film. While this film is closer to matching Toho's kaiju fare, it was more experimental compared to the previous movie. It was helmed by Shigeo Tanaka, a noted art film director at Daie, who infused it with a darker and more mature tone. It was a bit of a bold move given that kaiju films were being seen increasingly as children's fare. Barogon was a much wilder and more imaginative kaiju than what was typically seen in Toho's films at the time. Gamera vs. Barogon is an expansion of style for the Gamera series because it was darker, more melodramatic, and more adult-oriented, given that it had no child protagonist. However, this wouldn't be replicated again for almost three decades. Barogon wasn't just Gamera's first kaiju foe, but a taste of the off-the-wall monsters that would become staples of the franchise, for better or much, much worse. The movie was made to cash in on the surprise success of Gamera the Giant Monster. However, as has been noted, it was intended to entertain its target audience of adults and not children. Children were taken to the film, 
And you also noted that they were bored during the long stretches without monsters on screen. Box office numbers are unavailable, but the film underperformed when released on Double Bill in Japan with Daimajine, April 17, 1966. Because of this, future entries in the Showa series were given lower budgets. In America, it was released directly to television by American International Television in 1967 under the title War of the Monsters. It has a 5.0 with 2,043 ratings on IMDb. While it generally gets negative to lukewarm reviews from critics and general audiences, many kaiju fans consider it the best of the Showa Gamera series. AIP TV had the film dubbed into English in Rome by English Language Dubbers Association under the supervision of Salvatore Bilateri. The War of the Monsters version had 11 minutes of footage deleted, reducing it to 89 minutes, so it would fit into a two-hour time slot and allow for commercials. Most of the scenes cut were expositional or planning scenes involving the human characters. This cut has since fallen into public domain and been released by numerous companies on home media. Sandy Frank Film Syndication released the uncut film with the Dae Commission Hong Kong dub on VHS in the late 1980s. This was then heckled on Mystery Science Theater 3000. It was technically the first camera film they riffed if one includes their humble beginnings on Minneapolis-based KTMA. There are several forces at play. Superstition and science collide briefly when Karan and the natives insist that Barogan is a supernatural creature and their legends serve as the means by which scientists formulate countermeasures against the kaiju. Civilization clashes with superstition more prominently as Onodera and his comrades defy the natives' warnings and take the opal-slash-baragon egg. Onodera spends much of the latter half of the film eluding law enforcement and covering up his crimes. Humanism, as represented by the military and scientists, clashes with the supernatural and or nature as represented by Barogan in their many failed efforts to kill the kaiju. Onodera's avarice is in constant conflict with the other characters' altruism and concern. The humans distrust Gamera until he attacks Barogan. The most obvious theme is the denunciation of greed, lies, and other vices as seen with Onodera's continuous downward spiral and the poetic justice of Barogan eating him. Dr. Sato's staying on New Guinea because he was disillusioned with civilization is meant to give audiences pause. His kindness toward and service to the natives could be seen as atonement for Japan's wartime colonialism. Karan attempts to bridge the gap between her people and Japan by returning with Keisuke, which could also be seen as a rite of passage into adulthood. Her understated romance with Keisuke also illustrates this and the importance of human connection. The protagonists learn to trust Gamera, who in the end saves them all after their failed attempts to solve the problem of Baurgan. Well, that was a lot better than I expected. With my contractual obligations fulfilled, let's ride this wave as long as we can with some Toku Talk. All right, and with Jimmy's entertaining info dump out of the way, here's my first question to you two. What did you think of this Barugan movie guest starring Gamera? I think that's an accurate term Betrayal. for Betrayal. Yeah. Yeah, the, the first thing in my notes from watching the movie was Gamera is MIA. <laughs> oh, Yes. Now, interestingly, this does introduce the Gamera movie trope 
that he loses the first fight against the enemy monster and then comes back and wins in the second round. There was a first round? That must have been one of the differences. No. But no really? We, we saw it. Well, I mean, it was like barely there. I mean, he was just in the rainbow, literally. Yeah, he got frozen, and that's why. Okay, well, I'll definitely miss that. Oh, yes. the uh, As Brendan Tenold said on YouTube, the Death Rainbow, which seriously sounds like a great name for a band. <laughs> Death <Seriously>. Rainbow. <laughs> With limousine. <laughs> limousine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, so much that could be said about this. This is also the beginning of the sheer wackiness that is Gamera's opponents. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> this also, is uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Oy. That sounds like the joke I would make. <laughs> just be glad it's not Mr. Freeze. <laughs> ice to meet you. I'm sure that's how Barogan greeted Gamera. <laughs> the one thing that I find interesting or comical about Gamera is that he is a giant turtle that shoots fire out of all orifices. (laughs) 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 To put it nicely. Yes. (laughs) Roger Ebert actually, in a review of Gamera Guardian of the Universe, joked that Gamera must ignite his own flatulence in order to fly. (laughs) Um, I also definitely had a Naruto feeling. Oh, yes, because turtles are a big deal in Japanese culture. Well, no, not that, but the, uh, what's what's his name? The one that gets really big, the like like a boulder. Spins. My husband's looking at me like I'm crazy. Yes, he is. Shoji? Shoji. That's what it makes <laughs> me think of, because whenever Shoji, like goes into Zoom his... Dog. Oh, the boulder mode. Yeah, like he goes zoom, and his like, arm sticks in his body, and fire comes out. Yep. I wouldn't be surprised if that is a Gamera reference. Yeah, it could be. There are actually kaiju references in Dragon Ball. Wouldn't know. I don't count that as a real anime. Oh, hot take! (laughs) Hot take! All all the otakus in my audience are going to disown you? (laughs) Dragon Ball is probably okay. It's Dragon Ball Z that we disown. (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. Dragon Ball Z, I totally disown as an actual anime. You're right, I'm sorry. Okay, only only half of the the otakus are disowning you. The the lightning of those fans, please do not strike me. (laughs) (laughs) We're not an anime podcast right now. We've talked about anime, but we are not an anime podcast. (laughs) That, that's probably a good thing, though. <laughs> that will probably protect me. Uh, possibly. Plus, there's some very nice shielding in the, this building here. <laughs> They've been upgrading all of the, the buildings here on the island, in particular KIJU, so I think you'll be okay. I found the dubbing to be rather terrible. Oh, man. Yes, because that, that's what yeah. you guys, you guys watched the Sandy Frank dub that were, because a bunch of Sandy Frank movies were riffed on MST3K, most notably the Gamera's. Yeah, when you see it's a Sandy Frank production, you're in for a special couple of hours, let me tell you. Yes. <laughs> In that sense, it might have been better to watch the Japanese version. You know, would that have been was, loads better. I you think. know that that is actually something I was going to get at. I don't know if you guys listened to the first episode when I had our friends Nick and Tim on, but I described the original Gamera movie as 
how did I put it? Ridiculously mediocre, something like that. It doesn't really veer into absolutely terrible, but it definitely is nowhere close to good. But this one, I actually think it's going to be a nice little respite from the rest of these movies, but it's actually watchable in Japanese. The dubbing does it no favors, let me tell you. But it's actually quite watchable. Interestingly, as I mentioned to you right before we went on the air, this is actually a little bit of an outlier for these old Gamera movies. It's not entirely indicative of what the rest of the series is like because believe it or not, this movie was meant for adults. I do believe it, actually. Definitely. There's no Kenny. There, yeah, there's no little boy that... Yeah, the closest we have to a Kenny in this is Karin, and she's not even that much of a Kenny. Is that the... Um, the native girl. The native girl. Okay, the native girl that's like 20. Yeah, <laughs> that's not... <laughs> yeah. The other thing is, I think that it would have made a difference if we would have had the option to turn subtitles on even though it was in English, because sometimes... I've done that to try and understand what's actually going on. On MST3K, I think that would be a little bit difficult. Yeah, you can do it on MST3K, but... If it was an option for it, I would have, like, the movie to have subtitles, but not the... The riffs? Not the riffs. That would be an interesting... (laughs) I mean, it's not possible, and I know that. It just would have helped because, like, it felt like sometimes the uh, translation made it more confusing Mm -hmm. on top of their horrible voice acting. We're talking to you, Joel Hodgkins. <laughs> Hodgson. Hodgson. I'm sorry. <laughs> Be glad it was me and not Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy loves Joel. Well, in that sense, we actually agree. Joel, <laughs> I, I love Jerry and MST3K. I love the reboot. Please do more. <laughs> yeah, occasionally Jimmy and I get into debates. Not necessarily heated, but debates over MST3K hosts. I'm a Mike guy. You know this. I enjoy Mike, but for different reasons. I feel that they took away part of the show when Mike got in there because Mike is a different host. So as we're on the side tangent, the invention exchange was my favorite part of the show, and they took that away when Mike came on. But Mike was a good host in his own right. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. But obviously all of these Gamera episodes are right smack dab in the middle of Joel's run as host. And so as far as I care, the classics, I just don't get to see them right now. (laughs) but the interesting thing and jimmy mentioned this in his entertaining info dump this was meant for adults the first movie was considered a b picture so it didn't get as big of a budget but it was a gigantic hit so then they just went the complete opposite with this like here you get a picture level money and we're actually going to put one of our actual high profile talented directors in charge of this and we're going to aim it at an adult audience And then the movie flopped. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. Yeah, the original director ended up as the special effects director, and he said that every screening he went to for the movie, all the kids would just get bored during all of the talky scenes. And then after that, Daae decided, okay, you know what? Well, uh, uh, Yuasa, you, you can be in charge again. And then the first movie, he clashed with the studio about whether or not it should be an adult movie. Not in that sense, but (laughs) geared at adults or for kids. This one was geared at adults. It flopped at the box office. And then starting in the next movie, they're children's films. And the children get more precocious. Shut up. I know one of them is you. Quit reminding me. (laughs) Jimmy, before you're sent at NASA, you start in Gamera movies. 
Yes, Jimmy, I'll explain. He wasn't starring in the Gamera movies. One of the Gamera movies is about a very eventful chapter in his life. Oh, okay. I'm still confused, Jimmy, but I'll catch up on your history later. Trust me, I've yet to figure it out, and I work with this guy. (sighs) Anyway, it's just interesting how all of this stuff played out. But you know what I realized, actually, a few days ago, waiting for you guys to come over? It's actually a bit serendipitous that I chose you guys to come on for this movie, because you know what this movie was released on Double Bill with? No. Kill Bill. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been interesting. But no, Dimagine. Oh. Oh. Very good. (laughs) So it's very appropriate that you are here today for this. So like I said, compared to the first movie, which was in black and white, I might add, and this one obviously is in color, which was one of the big upgrades because they couldn't afford to do color in the first movie. So I don't know how much you paid attention to it, but they had the... Damn scene? No, Jimmy, I'm not swearing. It was a damn. Like Hoover Dam. Shut up. There's so many references from another movie. I'm sure. But anyway, that scene is actually pretty impressive, I will have to say. This is the Gamma movie that comes closest to equaling Toho in terms of their special effects because they threw a bunch more money at it. And they clearly invested a lot of it in making that opening scene with the dam. I could kind of see that outside of the turtle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you uh, spoke about how uh, Gamera shoots fire out of all of his orifices. Yes. Yeah, one of the drawbacks of watching this movie in high def, as you can see the little metal nozzles in the prop, which destroys the illusion a little bit. And as you already pointed out, and I've already hinted at, Gamera does not appear very much in this movie, and he gets top billing. He's in three scenes and has, I would say, no more than 10 minutes of screen time. So you get him at the beginning, then he disappears for 45 minutes, and then he disappears again for about 30. That must be a really good gig. I mean, getting paid for, like, a whole movie and having your name in the title and literally only being in it for, like, 15 minutes. It's not even 15. (laughs) I was being generous. (laughs) The next movie is actually just executive produced by Gamera. (laughs) (laughs) I'll ask him. He probably has executive produced on occasion. I'm sure that's one of its credits by the end of this. Yeah. Here's something. And this is actually a topic that has come up actually in the fandom, most infamously in a recent issue of G-Fan, where they were talking about it in a different movie. But (sighs) the natives... In this, which is a com, which was a fairly common trope at this point, having the monster originate on a South Seas island and there being natives. You know, they did that in Mothra. They did it in the Mothra versus Godzilla. It's happened a couple of times at this point, and I would say that that's one of the tropes that got started by the original King Kong thirty three, which you guys saw with us. Mm-hmm. But something that has been a little bit controversial is they are not using Polynesian actors in these movies. Those are Japanese actors that they essentially gave spray tans to (laughs) to be in this movie. And some people have interpreted stuff like this as blackface. Well, this was several years ago. It probably was what they're saying, but no one had any problem with that back then. 
Not in Japan, and honestly, it was done for practical reasons. I mean, it's not like they were making fun of them. They literally were using it to portray a character. So it's like having a spray tan. Yeah. Like I said, it was done for practical reasons. It's not like there's an overabundance of Polynesian actors in Japan, but they needed to do it, and they wanted to be accurate. I don't think you get it so much in this movie, but some people have interpreted some of these other movies that have done something similar as being unkind to the natives, but I think it's a moot point. It wasn't meant to be racist. I'm just going to say that right now. It wasn't meant to be racist. Can we just lay this to rest? Because I'm tired of talking about it <laughs> you know, online with people. You had no problem with us. I mean, it's just a movie. It's part of the plot. Yeah. I didn't feel like it was to the point of being ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, I felt like they did a very good job. Like, I didn't... Okay, granted, I wasn't looking for it, but I didn't feel like, oh, wow, that's obvious, like, that they aren't who they say they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, had you not said it, I wouldn't have noticed the difference. Yeah, I'm sure. But we're audience members who aren't necessarily looking for it. We're just watching the movie. Yeah, we were trying to enjoy the film. Well, the bots were making fun of it. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that made things a little bit better. Yeah. But. but I will admit, one of the reasons I bring it up is, can someone please explain to me why Karen, who is supposed to be a native. Now, if they had said that she was from Japan and she had just been living there for years, that's one thing. She's supposed to be one of the natives and she does not have a spray tan. <laughs> Again, I didn't really notice, but. Uh... How could you not? They only took every opportunity to do a close-up of her face. <laughs> I don't blame them, but... <laughs> I was actually more struck by the going back to New Guinea from World War II. Mm -hmm. Like the brother hid something in a cave or found something in a cave. And... Which, is it just me or is, did, they, did this whole endeavor seem like a lot of work for, what, four million yen, I think is what they said? <laughs> well, yeah, it was a lot of work for the money, but... The idea is you go to the cave, you get the gem, you get out. But that island was not a people-friendly place. No, and as you'll find out in the next segment, New Guinea was not. <laughs> and I mean, there are still parts of New Guinea that are not people-friendly. Yeah, we should know. We know somebody who is doing work in New Guinea. Now, Papua New Guinea, our friend Scott and his family, they're uh, doing work for Wycliffe Bible Translators there now. <laughs> Yeah, I should read his updates more often. I should, too. <laughs> but no. Sorry, uh, Scott. <laughs> I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> but no, this is something I made note of. You know, it's kind of amusing. You guys don't know this, but you know the, our villain in this, Onodera. It's amusing for me because this is the second movie in a row that I've covered that had a character named Onodera because the previous episode was Submersion of Japan that also had a character named Onodera. <laughs> Was it a bad guy? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, this is a bad guy name. <laughs> so I kept having to remind myself because I spent so much time working on that episode that I'm like, oh, yeah, this is not the same guy. <laughs> it's an evil name like Bob. <laughs> like Clancy. Yeah. And seriously, they go out of their way to make this guy evil. <laughs> Seriously, there's nothing good about Onodera. He's deceptive, he's murderous, he's violent. He beats up cripples and women. Oh my gosh. You don't get much more evil than that. He's greedy, he's entitled. There's so much wrong with him. 
Yeah, I'm like, okay, he's totally going to get what's coming to him because any of these movies, when they're that evil, quote unquote, somehow they end up getting themselves killed in a horrific way <laughs> okay, every which, time. Okay, which I do want to bring up. How, how did you guys feel about, we're jumping ahead a little bit, I don't care. How did you feel about his end? <laughs> he was asking for it. But, um, I'm sorry, the other main character that realized what he was doing was wrong and coming back and trying to make amends in like five other military guys. And you tell me that none of those other military guys would draw a weapon on that guy. Yeah, I was, uh, I do have that notice. Like what is wrong with these soldiers that they are not, they let this guy onto the ship and they don't shoot him. Even after he (laughs) shoots one of them. Yeah. That. (laughs) Okay. Even if you are incompetent, six people against one person. Really? Yeah. Really? Well, really what, you know what the real reason why they did that? Because they wanted him to get one last evil moment before his, not untimely, but his end. Because Barugani eats him. (laughs) Yep. It's one of the few times I can say I've seen a kaiju eat somebody on screen in a movie. And I am surprised Barugan didn't die from food poisoning. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I, that would have actually been a little bit hilarious. Gamera shows up. He's like, I'm here to kill Barogun. Oh, he's already dead. He ate that guy, didn't he? That explains it. <laughs> well, uh, my job is done. Although I will admit, we still do have Barogun, as you heard earlier. He is still on the island, and I can think of a few people I would like to feed to him. Oh, calm down, Jimmy. You're not on the list. Is he? He might be on yours, but he's oh. not on mine. Okay. <laughs> Trust me. I told Jimmy, you have to be on your best behavior when Joy is here, okay? <laughs> you act like I'm, like, going to do something mean if he doesn't start it. Like, I don't try and start crap with him. That's why I told him to be on his best behavior. Oh, okay. Because I'm <laughs> like, come on. I mean, <laughs> I'm not really a mean person. <laughs> Until you get on my bad side. <laughs> and I don't know what this voice is. <laughs> so. Barman wants to know, can anyone play fetch? <laughs> With a diamond. <laughs> oh, the diamond. Oh, yeah, because apparently Barogon loves the shiny. <laughs> he loves that shiny. Barogon was the alternate for Moana. <laughs> That that one crab that likes shiny stuff. (laughs) The sad thing is, it still didn't work. (laughs) Actually, I should have mentioned this with the whole death rainbow thing. But the funny thing is, the first draft of the script for this movie was actually kind of epic. It was going to be post-apocalyptic, and Gamera was going to come back after being freed from the capsule in space and found out that the world had been ravaged by volcanoes and taken over by icemen who had transparent bodies because they were literally made of ice, so you could see their skeletons and their organs. And it was going to be the whole fire versus ice thing. So one of my fellow kaiju fans and writers, John LeMay, has theorized that that's actually where the rainbow thing came from because the Icemen were inspired by the frost giants from Norse mythology. So he thinks the rainbow came from the Bifrost. I see. Okay, so speaking of the rainbow, as it's kind of come my thing, incidentally, is a sing-along song. 
you know, that goes with the um, movie mm-hmm. theme. And this is what uh, Joe and I came up with. He actually helped me with this one. Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection. Bargain camera and me. La da 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 La da 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 by the way, they do hold karaoke every week over at the resort, so you might want to check that out if you're here while that's going on. Mm, I definitely will. My husband will probably run away. Yeah, we don't want to leave Teddy and Bits with Gammer for too long. Well, I just like singing more than you do. That's all I was saying. Well, that too, but I mean, I'm probably going to need your help to pick them up. Gammer likes you more. <laughs> Anyway, so that is my song for this episode. Although I have to say, in a different context, Onodera's solution to dealing with scorpions is kind of awesome. Shoot them. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that was cut from the MSD3K episode, but he shot a scorpion with his revolver. No, that was definitely cut. Because I thought he stomped on it. Yeah, it seemed like they stomped on the Oh, no, stomping. they shot it, then they stomped on it. Oh, like we only got this. I think we only got the stomping. I don't remember the shooting. You're probably thinking of the second scorpion that actually stung the guy. That one they just stepped on. Okay, there was so- no second. There was one scorpion. Yeah. Oh, they cut it. Because in, yeah. the, in the original version, there are two. And you know, hilariously, apparently, this guy did not read the script because he got death by trope in this because... He talked about his family and what he was going to do for his family with all the money he was going to get from the Opal. And then he had a picture of his family in his breast pocket. If you're in a movie, that is guaranteed death. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying loving your family and having a picture of them is guaranteed death? Only in the movies. If you're in a movie. Yes. (laughs) Don't talk about them. Remember what happened to use. Always remember use. <laughs> I approve of this Full Metal Alchemist reference. <laughs> but anyway, and then not long after that, we come to the birth of Barugan. What did you guys think of that? Or did that get cut too? It's been a while since I've seen the episode. They definitely shortened it. They shortened it because, okay, first we got to go back to the beginning. Because uh, that's talk a very of, good place to and, start. And talk about where was the rest of the A-team, because Mr. T was on that boat. <laughs> yeah, And I pity the fool that didn't clean those floors. <laughs> Japanese Mr. T. Yes. Definitely. Honestly, like when he first like came out, I'm like, is that Mr. T? Like, that really could be Mr. T. I know it's not. but Now I suddenly want to know how to say, I pity the fool in Japanese, because that would be very appropriate. That's a little assignment for you, Jimmy. But no, the birth of Baurugan. Oh, and we also forgot. I'm sorry, you forgot one more thing. Oh. Okay, so apparently, in case you didn't know this, there is a difference between black market currency and regular currency. So it's got to be bison bucks, right? Of course! (laughs) I mean, after all, they literally said, don't forget to bring your black Black market market money. money. (laughs) I'm like, what is that? Is there a special currency? Isn't that just normal money? It's not the yen. It's not the (laughs) dollar. But it's bison bucks. Of course! (laughs) Yes, we've had a little bit of experience with bison dollars, haven't we, Jimmy? I know you would rather forget about that. You got to be host for a day, so be happy. 
So Baragon's birth. <laughs> Did you guys suspect at any point that the opal was actually an egg? I, I did in the cave. I didn't until they started freaking out that they took it. And that's also because I probably wasn't really trying to figure out the plot prematurely. <laughs> also, just want to point out, they would not have made it to that cave alive without a guide. I mean, yeah, they narrowly avoided quicksand. And it begs the question. No, no, they, there was no quicksand in this version. There was no quicksand? They dealt with quicksand. The three of them dealt with quicksand before they got to the cave. They, like, Magic. Le- left the village and got around them, almost killing them at the village. And then all of a sudden, they're in the cave and they found the oval. That's the jump cut. Wow. Wow, there was quicksand. This is it, really interesting to see what was kept and what wasn't. But then again, this movie's 100 minutes long. Yeah, and the MST3K episode with host segments was 90 minutes long, so they had to cut at least 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes out. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. So I guess that was one of the ones that went. (laughs) Yeah, so when you say there's quicksand and there was a second scorpion, like, nope, there's one scorpion. Yep, this is one of the reasons why apparently the board thought it would be interesting to show such radically different versions to the guests and not me. Although in this case, I think we were the ones more tortured by the Sandy Frank production. (laughs) But you had the bots. (laughs) They don't save everything. Very true. I mean, I still do love the invention exchange. That's probably like literally one of my favorite parts. But it definitely made it hard because I'm like, it was just painful. It was so painful. Yeah. I will tell you that this is not my favorite MST3K Gamera episode, but this has my favorite line in all of the episodes, which I didn't get to hear today. While Baurgon is rampaging through the city, I believe it is Crow, and he says, Hey lady, it's 10 p.m. You know where your kids are? I ate them. <laughs> I did really love that line. I actually started laughing. Also, the after host, there was a um, an after, like the movie host segment that I really, really loved. And it brought me back to my childhood when they were talking about all the books and made references to the Rainbow Connection. Um, something Velvet Rabbit or something. Well, no, like the book, isn't it right? No. Velveteen the Rabbit? Um, the yeah, they did. the Reading Rainbow. Reading That's Rainbow. what it was. <laughs> they made reference to Reading Rainbow with, and then had the books that were all like about Gamera and the, including... Velveteen Turtle. Turtle. The Velveteen Turtle. Um, so those of you who know Velveteen Rabbit story, which I had to explain to Joe. That tortoise in the hair. Um, oi. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I laughed very, 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 very hard. <laughs> I know. Jimmy came in and out of the smaller screening room on occasion, and I heard you guys laughing and debating and talking about things like, was it, uh, you were talking about another movie, like, you know, the gods must be crazy or something yes. like that. Oh, yes, they also uh, made a comment when the helicopter came down, like, the bots said something about, like, Did someone not- drop a Coke can? Yes. Or a Coke bottle? Yes, yeah. and, which um, apparently inspired a debate between the two of you. I caught yes, a little bit of it. Yes, On upon as to which movie they were referring to. For some reason, I was thinking it was What About Bob, but it really was The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's The Gods Must Be Crazy. Those are two very, very different movies. (laughs) I had them together in my mind for some reason. Gods Must Be Crazy is like a family classic in my family, so... (laughs) It wasn't wasn't in my family. Like I think I've watched both of those movies a total of once. (laughs) 
Which is why they're different movies and not taken together in my mind somehow. Yeah, well, here's the thing. We were trying to talk about the birth of Baurgan, which is effectively gross and weird. And apparently Yuasa, the special effects director, said it was because he worked on all eight of these old Gamera movies that it was his favorite scene in all of them was that. But here's the thing. Baurgan has a rather... Jimmy, I told you to shut off that mic. Is he mad that I made fun of him by quoting the MST3K line that he likes to eat children? Nom, nom, nom. (laughs) I only eat children that don't play fetch. Jimmy, shut up the mic. Anyway, so Baruga's weakness is water. (laughs) Which makes him more effective than the aliens in signs. Yes. Also, he emerged from the ocean. And then they use water to kill him later. And the rain weakens him. Now, I have heard a justification for this from August Ragone, who is something of an expert on these movies, that what it is is that he has to be in the water long enough for it to weaken him. Oh, okay, okay. So it's not instant dissolution. Here's the problem. I did an inordinate amount of research for this podcast, as I always do. As far as we know, we are to assume that Barugan lives in New Guinea. Fair enough. New Guinea gets 300 inches of rain a year and is prone to flooding. Okay, but my understanding is it wasn't that it totally disables him. It keeps him from being able to use his tongue, which is (laughs) how he spews the poison or whatever he does or whatever, however that's supposed to work. I'm assuming that Barugan is into French kissing. (laughs) Um, every time he uses that i keep thinking of that hellboy line who's like second date no tongue ew anyways so i always thought that the water kept him from moving because he couldn't really defend himself or attack anything so he's like i'm just gonna stay put until i can actually do something i took it as a more instant paralytic but yeah it. So then, in the end, what actually killed him? Drowning? Gamera also had him by the throat. Uh, Gamera's horn through his throat while he was... His teeth? In, yeah. <laughs> his tusks? His tusks, yeah. <laughs> Which his... is a, another little Gamera trope that gets introduced in this. The gratuitous gore. Eh. It's monster <laughs> gore. It's not against people. No, but Toho wasn't doing that with their Godzilla movies. It was a Gamera thing. Because the filmmakers wanted to make their monsters more animalistic and vicious. Also, Eiji Tsuburaya, who was in charge of special effects at Toho, didn't want to do it. He thought gore would be inappropriate for movies aimed at a kid audience. So he wouldn't let them do it in the movies. But when he's making his Ultraman show, decapitate the monster if you want. I'm a little confused on that, but sure... I did find it interesting that the monster bled green. It's purple. Was it purple? Okay, apparently. It was was definitely like a blue-purple. Okay. Oh, no, it was blue. Excuse me. It was blue. I don't know where I came up with See, I caught it before you did, Jimmy. I don't know where I came up with green. I'm crazy. Um, Gamera bleeds green. (laughs) Maybe that's what I was thinking. I don't know. But I did find it interesting. I'm like, okay. Gamera just freezes. He doesn't bleed in this one. <laughs> if it bleeds, we can kill it. 
I also want to know how <laughs> its own ray didn't kill itself when it can eat a truck. <laughs> or I guess it was a Jeep. Okay, I get that. It, it, at least it did damage him. <laughs> how does it not like... Well, I just feel a little bit sorry for Bowergon in that case because they reflected his death rainbow straight to the butt. That was the other thing. I'm like... Wouldn't they redirect it? Like, go like, oh, hey, we should redirect it just a little bit so it actually gets, like... They should have done what Thanos told everybody to do. You should have gone for the head. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now, interestingly, I don't know if this was kept in your version or not, but there is a scene where they're showing all the people hiding in a shelter after being evacuated, and there's an old man who starts complaining to his wife and says, I hope they don't drop another atomic bomb. No, they definitely did not translate it that way. He just was whiny. Yeah, he actually... why are we stuck in here all crammed in together? Basically, that's what he said. Oh, wow. They've radically changed that. He actually says, I hope they don't drop another atomic bomb. Wow. I don't think he said that in there. Do you remember that? He did not say that in the the Sandy Frank terrible dubbing. (laughs) (laughs) Although I will say... The, as much as these movies get knocked, particularly with their special effects, not so much in this one, but in some of the other ones, when Gamera's breathing fire, that's real fire. They didn't animate that in. They did not have the technology like Toho did to do that. So that's real fire. And oh. all I keep thinking in some of those scenes is that poor suit actor on Baurugan, he is dangerously close to some fire there. So I'm guessing that wasn't fun. <laughs> Although they wisely took the actor out of the Gamera suit when they were doing that. So it's an empty suit when they're doing the fire. Like, oh, that's good. Because I would have been a little terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one of the other host segment was a fake commercial for a live action set. (laughs) Yeah, it was a full action set for all of like the entire Japanese army with helicopters and everything. The JSDF. (laughs) Yeah, the JSDF versus camera, basically. And it says, this is blah, 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 and this isn't really there. It's not really a real thing, but it's, like, it's and there. Not, and not inclu- and this isn't included. And, and it was <laughs> talking in, like, the Micro Machines fast voice. <laughs> oh, that guy. <laughs> but, no, but it was, it was Tom Servo doing it. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> By all our playsets and toys. It was fantastic. Additional sets not included. Yes, I know, I know. My notes are a little bit scattered right now. We're kind of jumping back and forth with different things on this movie, but this is Gamera. Did you expect anything less? So Uh, now we're going to move on from the bomb. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I have a really good joke. Is it because we're on a rabbit trail? (laughs) Ha ha. We do have Night of the Lepus bunnies here. Well, one. Because if we have more than one, because if we have more than one, there's going to be a lot more. Like, we joked earlier about, you know, the tortoise and the hare. Yes. So I, yeah, I was trying to connect. Yes. Gamera and the Lepus Bunny do occasionally hang out, and I do think Gamera's challenged him to a race on occasion. And he wins because he's rocket-powered, so. That's fair. He likes to rub that in. But does the bunny have pointy teeth? Yes. But no one has brought in the holy hand grenade in case we need it. Okay. Unfortunately. But. Okay, back to the movie. Yes, back to the movie. Did you guys notice... I just thought this was amusing. Did you notice how quickly Karen, the native girl, which is why I think it might have been better if they had said like she was the daughter of the doctor who had yeah. decided to stay there, how quickly she acclimated to civilization. Yeah, and like how she actually had clothes. 
that well, were like not native clothes. I assumed that they bought them when they came to Japan. Probably. Interesting thing. This is a little bit later in my notes, but there are actually bits from the script and from this movie that got cut, which is astonishing because it's still 100 minutes long. They actually had a scene where Karin was actually performing with all the natives while they were doing their dance number. By the way, the dance troupe they hired to do that had been in several Toho movies, also playing dancing natives. (laughs) Interestingly, one thing that they changed from the script with that opening native dance scene... They were supposed to be topless because this is an adult movie. Well, I'm kind of glad that they weren't. (laughs) Yeah, then it would have never made it to Mystery Science Theater. No, they just would have cut that part out. They've done it before. Yeah. I don't know why that's necessary for the Because it's for grown-ups. Even grown-ups know what that looks like. (laughs) We don't need a science class. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> well, and then to continue the train of weirdness with Karen, I don't know if this was kept because it seemed like it would be rife for jokes, but did they keep in the scene where Karen tried to help out our hero after he got into a fight with Onodera? A little bit. She, like, wrapped up his arm and he wiped blood off her face. That was about it. Oh, they cut out the part before that, apparently. It looked like she... I don't know, I guess thought he had been bitten by a snake or something because she tried to suck on the wound. I don't remember that. Do you remember that? They made a couple of jokes, but I don't remember seeing her do that. Oh, she did. And it was weird. And I wrote in my notes, is she a vampire? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the bots definitely made some vampire jokes. Okay, so obviously we missed that. Yeah, and I still don't understand what she thought was going on. He clearly had just been cut. It wasn't that he had, there was poison or something that needed to be sucked. I was like, what are you doing? I don't I understand. Maybe, Maybe I missed something. It? I don't know. Maybe I missed weird. something. I was trying to figure out why she had blood on her face. That was why, because she tried to suck on the wound. Okay, that's just bizarre and confusing. Oh, maybe. Welcome that's... to Gamera. Welcome to die. <laughs> or in this case, welcome to suck. I I yeah. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Gamera movies are actually painful for me. Was this one that painful for you, even with the bots? Because, like I said, this is a bit of an outlier. It's actually it is it is actually better than the first Gamera, so it's technically a superior sequel. How many of those can you think of? Not many. (laughs) Yeah, it was better than the first one. It was probably one of the better ones to do. I still think that the dubbing made it. Oh, the dubbing doesn't help, like I said. Terrible. Yeah. I would have rather dealt with subtitles. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. It it is better with subtitles. I think that actually makes it harder because the voice acting was so bad. It just made the movie feel that much worse. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. 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 I also made note of the fact that, interestingly, both science and the military fail to deal with the kaiju problem. Then it takes another kaiju to fix it. That happens a lot in these movies. The incompetence of the Japanese self-defense force. That is definitely a thing, and I've read some very interesting essays that discuss that theme. I don't know. I thought the idea of trying to set off the missiles where his tongue couldn't reach was really smart. 
I mean, they were like, oh, we can't reach that. So let's just shoot him off where he can't reach. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. so they tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they failed. And then Baurgan gave Gamera a tongue lashing. Oi. I make puns to get through this. And that one wasn't very punny. <laughs> Joe is currently hanging his head in shame. <laughs> or pain, I'm not sure which. I'm sure that happens a lot. Anytime a pun is made, if you remember the movie Up, it's like I have the cone of shame. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. Hongo, the star of this movie, our hero... He actually didn't think he was suited for this movie, but he didn't have a choice in the matter because the Japanese film studios operated on the contract system. So he just got the assignment and he had to be in the movie. Funny thing, because he wasn't sure he was a good fit for this movie, he actually faked an illness while they were making it because he thought if he faked the illness that they would hire someone else to finish the movie. They didn't. They just waited for him to get better. So after a month, he just had to say, yeah, I'm better now. I didn't think he did a bad job. Yeah, but movies like this were not necessarily viewed as great career moves. Fair. Although, granted, again, we didn't get to actually hear him. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But interestingly, I do believe the guy who played Onodera, and I could be wrong about this. Again, Jimmy, your blog. He actually was in one of the Daimajin movies. Oh, I thought I recognized the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was in Wrath of Daimajin. So Daimajin strikes again. Now back again. <laughs> I screwed that up the first time. <laughs> but yes, so again, if you watch enough of these movies, you'll start seeing a lot of faces. And there were a lot of really talented people who worked on this movie. I worked on what you would consider prestige pictures for Daie. Mm-hmm. And you know, so... They were assigned to work on this movie, and they had to work on this movie. So contrary to popular belief, these movies were not made by a bunch of talentless acts. They just turn out to be kind of silly movies in the end. (laughs) Just talentless writers? (laughs) I've seen interviews of the screenwriter for these movies. That's a little harsh. Even he knew they were silly. Yet he didn't make them better. Interestingly, because we were talking about, we've been talking about Baurugan all this time, and in case he decides to poke his head in here again, his name is actually derived from Bar, the Aboriginal word for crocodile ancestor. Okay. And Gon comes from the English word dragon. And he was meant to essentially be a four legged Godzilla. In fact, there is a VHS cover, back cover, I should say, of this movie that calls him a loser of a Godzilla lookalike contest. Ouch. I didn't think he was that bad. Now that you do mention it, I do see the similarities. Yeah. I always thought he was like a giant alligator dog. I thought he was a lizard. Reptiles? Yeah. (laughs) Like a reptile lizard thing. Lizards are reptiles by definition. Yes. (laughs) I stick my tongue at thee. So, uh, going back several... Hours, it seems ago. Um, <laughs> you said that this follows the pattern of Gamera getting his butt kicked once and then coming back. Coming and back and winning in the second round. Because he, from losing the first time, he figures out how to defeat the monster the second time. So Gamera is really the kaiju world's Peter Parker. I might have actually said Rocky, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, Spider-Man always gets his butt handed to him the first time he fights a villain, and then he uses science in his brain to figure out what went wrong and comes back and defeats it. Well, there you go. And if you've seen all of these MST3K episodes, I'm assuming, so you know that Gamera comes up with some pretty clever strategies. Yeah, so he's Peter Parker of the kaiju world. You heard it here, folks. Gamera is (laughs) Spider-Man. Only in turtle form. He's not the fifth Ninja Turtle. I was he just going to make a Ninja Turtle comment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although he's the original Ninja Turtle. He's the original. <laughs> there you go. He's almost more like a sumo wrestler, though, type turtle. <laughs> Actually, I don't think that's too far off. Sumo turtle. Doskoi <laughs> Gamera. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's that buffy, like, I can use my weight against you and pull you into water, which was part of the benefit. Of By that. the way, that Gamera, uh, not, not Gamera, but that Baurugan suit wouldn't sink when they were filming that scene. They had to <laughs> chop it up into tiny pieces so they could get it to go underwater. <laughs> Too much rubber. <laughs> Whatever you say to me bounces off of me. Oh, no, I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. Yep. Except yep. all the children who were watching this movie would have been too bored to make that joke, apparently. Probably. I can see why they would be bored by this. Yeah, this was definitely not a children's film. <laughs> but do you think it would really appeal all that much to adults, even with all the melodrama? No. A bad dubbing aside. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I think that this is a niche movie. Adults don't get into monster movies as much as children would. And then the plot, it's not totally out there, but having a group of four or five people go after a treasure and stake some life savings in it. I didn't even catch that the main character was the brother of the other guy until like halfway through in the brothers. That might have been a product of the MST3K editing and the dub. Yeah. (laughs) They said something about when he first knocked on the door of like, hey, guys, this is my brother. But they kind of like really skimmed over it. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, it's just like those movies where you're like, don't go in there. It's dark. You're going to die. There's a big sign that said, (laughs) don't go past this point. Oh, no, they just say that because they don't want us to steal their money. You're talking about native people who have no use for money. Why would they do that? Also, is it just me or is there a little legend about the opal? The diamond? uh, Conveniently ambiguous. They just say, oh, no, it's dangerous. You shouldn't take it. Well, why is it dangerous? It's just dangerous. Well, what's going to happen? It's just dangerous. (laughs) That's all you get. We don't know. It's been a thousand years since it happened last. We just know that it almost destroyed our village. Except the one native girl's like, yeah, we knew this was going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, that's the other thing. That doesn't make any sense. Like, they didn't know what they did know. That's why I'm saying it's a little bit bizarre. But what can you do? They, They made this movie in six months. And also a big giant diamond. Yeah. Yeah. This was rushed together with a larger budget because the first movie was a huge hit. So that probably accounts for some of the script discrepancies. Yeah. I guess it's not totally terrible for a six month rush, but we know that rushing films always makes them better. We're looking <laughs> at you, Street Fighter. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, change the channel.
a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. From 1977 to 1986, Marvel Comics published comics based on the blockbuster movie hit Star Wars. Hey, I remember that comic. But Star Wars was not the only comic Marvel published based on someone else's property. Really? Tell me more. I will. I'll tell you much more in podcast form. Marvel's Cosmic Comics, a podcast covering Marvel's licensed publishing during the first Star Wars era. Like what? Well, Star Wars, of course. Of course. And Micronauts. Classic. Rom. Space Knight. Better than it should be. Shogun Warriors. No idea what it is, but it sounds awesome. John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I've heard of that. Star Trek. Motion picture era, isn't it? Godzilla. That was a comic. Man from Atlantis. So, Aquaman. Jack Kirby's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wait. Really? That's a thing? A human fly. What? He was a real-life stuntman. You're just making stuff up now, aren't you? I wish I were. And there's much, much more. Anyway, join comic book fan, collector, and writer Ben Avery as he explores the good, the bad, and the ugly of Marvel's licensed sci-fi comics. Marvel's Cosmic Comics, found wherever you catch your podcasts and on the web at comicbooktimemachine.com. All right, and now it's time for the Toku topic. <laughs> the Toku topic. The Toku topic. 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 I know. I was being ob- obnoxious. The Toku topic. Say that five times fast. Uh, Say Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> so as I was saying, it's time for the Toku topic, and we will be discussing the New Guinea campaign from World War II. Because that gets referenced a fair amount in this movie. Part of the movie takes place on New Guinea. And the whole plot is set into motion because one of our characters, I believe it's Onodera, if I remember. No, it's uh, the brother. The, the older brother. The older brother who said that when he was serving during World War II in New Guinea, he found a giant opal and he hid it because he had plans to go back there. And they even told him, it's like, it's been 20 years. You really think it's still going to be there? And he's like, yes. So go find it. Because... I'm crippled and I can't go do it. I need you guys to do it for me, which I guess is kind of an implication that it might be a war injury. Yeah. Yeah. He said he was a POW. Yeah. Which that actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. There were not very many Japanese POWs. Yeah. Because the Japanese at that time, they would act like they were going to surrender and then they would pull the pin on a grenade and kill more allied troops. And eventually the allied forces said, we're not taking any chances. Yeah. So I guess the implication is that he might be a rare example of a Japanese POW, which, now that I think about it, might mean that he was shamed when he came back from the war, and maybe that's why he wants the opal. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes I'm sense. I'm reading more into this than the movie probably intended me to. But probably, but that's okay. Maybe. But anyway, it's interesting when I started digging through and looking up stuff for this, and... I'm going to preface this by saying we are not hardcore history and there are a lot of details about the New Guinea campaign that I could get into. There's a lot of minutia, but I'm not getting into the minutia. (laughs) Nate, I think we're all glad you're not addicted to context like Dan. (laughs) True. (laughs) True. Very, very true. But the first thing that I found that was really interesting is soldiers in the Japanese Imperial Navy had a saying related to New Guinea. Heaven is Java, hell is Burma, but no one returns alive from New Guinea. Yep. I should tell you something. From what I was reading, 
One of my sources said, quote, it was four years of some of the worst warfare in history fought in monsoon-soaked jungles, debilitating heat, impassable mountains, torrential rivers, and animal, insect, and disease-infested swamps, what one American soldier called a green hell on Earth. Yeah, that's why I was like, there's no way that those guys got to that cave alive without a guide. (laughs) The weird thing about the New Guinea campaign is that it's overshadowed by other battles and campaigns in the Pacific theater, but it was one of the longest campaigns of World War II because it went from January 1942 all the way to the end of the war in September 1945. In fact, the last holdouts, interestingly, this is only retroactively interesting, admittedly, the last holdouts to surrender in New Guinea were on September 11th. Well, I do know that there was like people doing guerrilla fighting for like 30 years. Yes, which I actually covered that in an episode last season, the one on Atragon. Ah. Japanese holdouts. Japan dumped a lot of... There are wartime resources, warplanes, ships, 600,000 troops, because they believed holding New Guinea was key to victory. Yeah, it was the key to being a threat to Australia Mm -hmm. and keeping the rest of their islands they'd taken safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They even diverted said resources from other fronts, which contributed to Allied victories elsewhere. That this campaign is overlooked is ironic because captured Japanese generals interrogated after the war said this campaign was a huge contributor to Japan losing the war. Yeah, the amount of casualties and resources they lost in that campaign were astronomical compared to the rest of the war Mm -hmm. or a single island war. Yeah, I can only imagine how many of those casualties weren't even from Allied troops, but just the island itself. Yeah, which I have details about that. We'll get into it. So just to give a little bit of background, because not everybody knows where New Guinea is, what New Guinea is, and all of that. So New Guinea is the second largest island in the world. Pop quiz, what's the biggest island? Because I feel like being obnoxious and a school teacher. Shut up, Jimmy. And you don't get to answer. Australia? Yep. I had no idea. That was an educated guess. (laughs) It was a very good educated guess. It stretches 1,500 miles from west to east. It's 93 miles north-northwest of Australia. The island is mountainous with peaks as high as 16,000 feet and is covered with thick jungles. And it totals 312, 170,000 square miles So it's nearly twice the size of California, just to put it into perspective. And the main island in New Guinea is about 700 miles wide at its widest point. Wow, that is like really big. Yeah. (laughs) And the coastlines, at this point especially, had various European settlements on it. And over, this is relevant to the movie, over a thousand native tribes in the interior. Mm Mm-hmm. The different sections of the island were controlled by the Dutch as part of the Dutch East Indies, the Australians who took it from the Germans in 1914, and, of course, the British. (laughs) The largest island is called New Britain, which was home to the most important location during the campaign, which is Rabaul, a city built on, quote, one of the finest harbors in the world, end quote, 
The Japanese established their base of operations in that city. And interestingly, there's another connection, so to speak. Ishiro Honda, who famously directed a bunch of Godzilla movies and some other Toho tokusatsu science fiction films, before he ever did the first Godzilla film, he directed two war epics in the early 50s, one of which was called Farewell Rabal. I do have access to these movies, and I plan to watch them at some point. And now that I know this, it's going to be even more interesting. So, continuing the background, you might be wondering, why was this so important? Well, Japan sought to control Southeast Asia to acquire resources that they lacked as a country, such as iron, tin, coal, oil, bauxite, rubber, and rice. I don't know why they were short on rice, but okay. That's what my research said. And they also wanted to create a, air quotes up to the mic, as Luke Giaconetti would say, protective perimeter from the Aleutians in the north to the central and southern Pacific and around the Indian Ocean. Japanese propagandists called this the Great East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Yeah, Japan's military was the first military that could challenge Western powers and win. Had they been less of a jerk, let's put it that way, when they (laughs) took over countries, they may have actually gotten the natives' help like China, and been able to keep this sphere. It's interesting that you bring that up because one of the guys in this movie, maybe it wasn't in the MST3K Sandy Frank dub, mentioned that the natives would be friendly because they helped them during the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the natives actually were helpful for both sides during the war. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying like when they actually conquered a place, like Mm -hmm. when they actually conquered Hong Kong or Mm -hmm. had they been less of wartime atrocities and more friendly, they may have gotten the people's support to take on more of the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, as you would expect, every person and resource within this sphere, but really anywhere the Japanese went during the war, was intended to serve the emperor. So, along with that, specifically about New Guinea, the goal was to control the airfields on the islands, especially in the New Guinea capital of Port Moresby, because it would put their bombers in striking distance of Australia's Melbourne-Brisbane coastal belt and accomplish Prime Minister General Hideki Tojo's goal of, quote, throttling Australia into submission, end quote. (laughs) Yeah, if they were to control the shipping lane and bomb them from the air, they could partially choke the resources. Mm -hmm. Most Australian forces were occupied with fighting in Greece, North Africa, and the Middle East, So New Guinea and their home country were vulnerable. What they did have were volunteer militias and support groups who had to fight as snipers and as guerrilla fighters. Yeah, it's actually, as you said, their best fighters were in other theaters. So they basically got the army's reserves, Mm -hmm. like your school teachers and and things, (laughs) fighting off really some of those soldiers on the Japanese side were like the emperor's personal guard. So the tip of the spear versus the National Guard, essentially. (laughs) The butt end of the spear? (laughs) Yeah, the the butt end. (laughs) Also, the Japanese knew it would take months for the Americans to train and ship forces to New Guinea. The time to strike was now in their minds. But this whole ordeal proved to be a war of attrition. Yes, Jimmy, just like our chess games. (sighs) Moving on. (laughs) 
Like I said, there's a lot of minutia involved with the New Guinea campaign, but I'll give you the broad strokes of the operation. One of the articles I looked at said that this campaign occurred in five phases. The first two were primarily done by the Japanese, and the last three were primarily conducted by the Allies. So in phase one, according to this article, Japan landed on and conquered the North Coast, establishing bases that spread all the way to Leh and Salamaua in northeastern New Guinea. If Scott is listening to this, I'm sure he'll write in (laughs) feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com and tell me how to pronounce all these things correctly. (laughs) This phase began on January 4th, 1942, so not even a month after Pearl Harbor, (laughs) with the Japanese bombing Rabaul which had the strongest force of Australian troops in the Bismarck Islands. 400 of the 1,200 men managed to escape to safety after a desperate march across the island, which I'm sure was not fun. (laughs) So that was phase one. Phase two was called the Papua Campaign, and it included the last major offenses by the Japanese in New Guinea. They made two attempts to take Port Moresby. Remember, that was one of their major goals. Mm Mm-hmm on the southern coast of Papua New Guinea in an effort to isolate the country as opposed to invading Australia. This led to their defeat at sea at the Battle of the Coral Sea, which was a major battle that took place during this campaign, and then in desperate combat along the Kokoda Trail, at which point the Allies went on the offensive and pushed them back in early 1943, eliminating their foothold in the north. That was phase two. Phase 3 began in the summer of 1943. The Allies planned to neutralize the Japanese base at Rabaul. The goal at first was to capture the city, but instead they isolated it. Noticing a pattern here? There were still 100,000 Japanese troops there, but the Allies destroyed any aircraft that entered the area almost immediately and kept up an aerial assault on the base. Now here's a funny little detail. Raiding Rabaul was considered to be so safe, it was used as in-theater training for new units. (laughs) That's when you know you got the enemy pinned down. (laughs) When you can say, walk out there, you'll be fine. (laughs) No, and you're like, okay, you're the new fighter bomber. Okay, I need you to go bomb this base. That's your training. (laughs) Oh, that happened to you during the war in space? I'm sure. That sounds like another one of your tall tales. I'm just saying. Oh, okay. In actuality, you did that to a couple of the new recruits. Gotcha. Those Real ven- brave there. Yeah, those Venusian landscapes are fun, aren't they? Yeah. Anyway, moving on. And then we come to phase four. This was launched in spring 1944 by the Allies. They leapfrogged along the northern coast of New Guinea and Dutch New Guinea to pave the way for the return of General Douglas MacArthur to the Philippines, where he had avowed, famously I should add, I shall return. The Americans saw victory in New Guinea as vital to advancing to Japan and destroying the empire. Then in phase five, which sounds like it was the least eventful of them for the most part, This involved the Allies mopping up any remaining Japanese troops on New Guinea and surrounding areas while abandoning others to simply, quote-unquote, fade away. (laughs) Again, isolation. 
seems to be a theme here. Attrition and isolation. What you may or may not come across in your research is those islands, because they're so heavily jungled, there was no front line. There was patrol groups, Mm -hmm. and you would just get in a circle and defend the circle. Mm -hmm. So infiltration tactics were a big thing. And hunting down hundreds, maybe even thousands of Japanese troops on that island, yeah, they're not going to risk it. They would rather isolate it. Mm -hmm. Most of this phase, however, was done by Australian troops. This began in December 1944 and lasted until the end of the war, so about nine months. It was controversial, in Australia anyway, because it was seen as a pointless offensive that was meant to improve Australia's political standing after the war. (laughs) The Japanese did manage one counterattack led by General Adachi, though, in July 1944. And just because I thought this was funny when I was looking through, there were various operations conducted during this campaign, and I always find these military operations to have slightly humorous names. So a few that occurred during the New Guinea campaign were Cartwheel, Dexterity, Reckless, Postern, and Ago. <laughs> Operation Ago. <laughs> Seriously, that's what it was called. Operation Ago. <laughs> oh, it's Ago? No. I'm calling for Operation Ago. <laughs> so that's the broad strokes. But let's get, I'll give you some of the details of what was going on during all of this. A major drawback for the Japanese was they didn't protect supply services. They couldn't compete with American shipbuilding and had a huge shortage of transports and cargo ships. They tried to compensate with rapid warship movement. One of the Japanese survivors later admitted, quote, We lost because we could not supply our troops and because our Navy and Air Force could not disrupt the enemy's supply line, end quote. And as we've been hinting at a little bit the terrain prevented the movement of large troop formations there were no roads or railways on new guinea so most of the fighting was face-to-face combat with small units although as i've noted there were a few large battles such as quote the three-month-long battle at Borbunagona from november 1942 through january 1943 during which 24,000 Americans fought alongside a similar number of Australians to dislodge a Japanese army from well-fortified positions, end quote. It's from one of my sources. And here's another quotation from my sources. Quote, in the Southwest Pacific, small arms claimed 32% of Americans killed in action during the war and artillery 17%, a marked contrast to the overall rates in the European theater of 19.7 and 57.5%, respectively. So the rest of that was disease? I'm getting to that. (laughs) Entire 10-man squads were known for disappearing. Their skeletal remains being found in the thick, soggy growth later picked clean by animals and insects. Soldiers were cut by 10 to 12 foot tall kunai grass, which I didn't even know kunai grass was a thing until I started looking into this. And the first thing that came to my mind was Naruto. (laughs) Kunai blades. Oh. (laughs) Because it's sharp grass. Right. That had to be chopped down with machetes. The animals that threatened them, quote, included crocodiles, snakes, lizards, anteaters, tree kangaroos, wallabies, butterflies with 12-inch wingspans. Oh, I guess Mothra has a few cousins on New Guinea. (laughs) 
and more than 600 species of birds, including the five-foot-tall cassowary, known to kill a man with a single swipe of one of its dagger-like clawed feet. Soldiers were regularly warned to steer clear of this most dangerous bird. And I thought Skull Island was scary. (laughs) Okay, so at least there was no snakes on a plane. We don't know if there planes was one of the trains there. So far, it's just been mountains and jungles. Well, there were no trains on there either. They did have planes because they had airfields, but no trains. Yeah, but snakes on a plane. Yes, of grass. Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh. Yeah. That yeah. plane. <laughs> that plane. Gotcha. Snakes on a plane of kunai grass. Yes, sure, Jimmy. Mock me for not catching that pun. Jimmy, you have no room to talk. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, keep telling yourself that. Moving on. A soldier's greatest fear was a tiny scratch that could rapidly become infected and crammed with maggots. Mm Mm-hmm. Yum. The aggressive insect population included malaria-carrying mosquitoes. Interestingly, (laughs) Onodera, as he probably deserved, caught malaria, which is why he had to use that infrared light that magically brought Baurugan back to life, even though that egg had presumably been there for 20 years and Karin said it only took 10 years to hatch. I'm a little confused. No, no. It said it took 10 years to mature once it hatched. Oh. But it was like... A thousand years between hatchings. I know. Confusing. Thousands of soldiers on both sides died of dengue fever. I may not be saying that right. Dysentery. Oh, they must have been playing Oregon Trail. (laughs) Burry Burry. No idea what that is. Scrub typhus. Well, that sounds wonderful. And Blackwater fever, which was also called breakbone fever by the American soldiers. Okay. You didn't give me a chance. So Burry Burry, is that from Bora Bora? Temperatures reached the mid-90s, oh, that doesn't sound so bad, and had high humidity, oh, that doesn't help, which was killer to soldiers carrying 60 pounds of gear. Yeah. Malaria was remedied with mosquito control, scientific treatment, and greater malarial discipline. Paradoxically, the dangerous jungles that claimed many Japanese lives were also an advantage against the Allied soldiers, because <laughs> they knew the terrain and they could hide. Mm-hmm. There was also the threat of violent rainstorms. Again, I don't understand how Baurugan could have lived on New Guinea. That caused flooding, which could wash away even well-trodden footpaths. One flood even washed away a Japanese general to his death. 300 inches of rain fell in a year in some parts of the island. According to one American veteran of New Guinea, quote, it rains daily for nine months, and then the monsoon starts. <laughs> Their boots wore out in a week because of it. These conditions drove some soldiers to madness. The neuropsychiatric rate for American soldiers in New Guinea was the highest in the Southwest Pacific Theater with 43.94 per 1,000 men, according to one U.S. Army report. Oh, it somehow wasn't as high on the war in space. Well, you certainly went a little crazy. Just saying. Wait, the rain wasn't as high in space? There's rain in space? The going crazy rate. 
Oh, I see. Because I thought he was talking about rain. I was like, how is it raining in space? It's a very rainy day in space. Apparently. Okay, fine. It doesn't rain on Venus. That's why it's so dry and arid. Got it. In the end, now we're getting to the casualties part. In the end, casualties were high for the New Guinea campaign. 202,100 Japanese soldiers, sailors, and aviators were killed, with more than half of them dying from disease, untreated wounds, and starvation. And you said there was how many sent over there originally? 600,000. Wow. The Allies lost 15,000, and 7,000 of these were Americans. Although I looked at another source that said it was 24,000. Four medals of honor were awarded to men who fought in this campaign. For the sake of time, as much as I would love to recount them, I'm not going to, but this is why I include links to all of my sources in the show notes so you can go read it yourself. But speaking as someone who comes from a military family, I felt it should be mentioned. 140,000 Japanese troops and auxiliaries remained on the island after the surrender, with 40,000 hiding in the jungles. They starved to death and even resorted to cannibalism, eating recently dead comrades. Not exactly the note I would have wanted to end on with this (laughs) discussion, (laughs) but that is my last note on the New Guinea campaign. (laughs) So, just out of curiosity... How much did you guys know before I went into this little spiel? As far as like the sea battles, we knew more than what you were presenting because we've been listening to hardcore history. Mm-hmm. He's been doing, what is it, Supernova in the East? Which is yeah. all about the Pacific Theater. Mm-hmm. And that sea battle, interestingly enough, the Allies were ready for because they were listening in and broke the code on the yes of uh, i actually found that in my research they talked about breaking the code and using that to gain a tactical advantage in new guinea yeah at the battle of coral sea and also midway mm-hmm. which midway was a turning point because before then japanese had enough carriers to keep up mm-hmm. and then they were planning on whittling down the american carrier strength and it backfired and mm-hmm. they they lost nearly i think they lost all but one mm-hmm but by that point, the rate that the Americans could, we could get our ships out versus theirs, we get out three carriers for every one of theirs. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was over. Yeah. I, one of the articles I read on this actually compared the New Guinea campaign to what the Germans did in the European theater when they tried to go after Russia. <laughs> the Soviets. <laughs> How it was an ill-advised invasion yeah. that... Didn't. cost them so dearly that they didn't have the resources to keep up with the entire war effort. Japan was already bogged down. They bit off more than they can chew when they went after China in the 30s. That didn't help either. So, like, a majority of their good troops were in China, and then some of their other good troops went to New Guinea, and then the other theaters just didn't get yeah. the good troops or yeah. the resources. Just like so. I said. But it's interesting that such... An important thing gets referenced in this movie. I remember the first time I watched it, realizing I had to cover it for the show. I'm like, what am I really going to latch on to? And then when they started talking about the New Guinea campaign, I'm like, what is that? And then I looked it up. I'm like, how did I not know a whole lot about this? Like I said, it's not something that gets talked about a whole lot. No, I mean, really, like, honestly, when you think about what we learn in history class, how often is it 
oh, the bombing in Hawaii, and then, yeah, we fought them, and then we nuked them, and then it's, oh, let's talk about Germany. So honestly, until I really started listening to the podcast with Joe with Hardcore History, a lot of that I did not know because it's just not widely talked about or told or taught. Yeah, and I mean, there are some things that every country doesn't want to talk about their failures. Starting out the war in the Pacific, we got our butts handed to us for like the first couple of months. Then we started to be able to fight back. And yeah, it does not get the history emphasis that Hitler does or Stalin does. Actually, I didn't know anything about except that, you know, Hitler tried to fight Stalin and that Russia was a front. I didn't realize just how massive a front Russia was until I started listening to history podcast on my own. That was never really taught in school because it's not American. It didn't fly to us. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's amazing how that works, I got to say. And living and working on Ogasawara has taught me a lot of very interesting things, and this is one of them. There you go. A nice little history lesson because of Gamera. <laughs> You're welcome. Best thing to come out of the Gamera movie. <laughs> uh, you say that, but when we get to the 90s trilogy, mm. <laughs> that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> so I think that's, again, we're not hardcore history. So I think this is as good a spot as any to finish up with our little history lesson. Just wanted to say once again, thanks for stopping by you two. Hopefully, Gamera took good care of the dogs for you. Oh, I'm sure he did. I'm sure they all had fun. <laughs> Just make sure to keep Barugan away, right? Barugan <laughs> friends with dogs. Jimmy, what did I tell you? Turn it off. Hey, he waited to the end of the episode. I will give him that. That's fine. But apparently, you still have a few kinks you need to work out with the orca. Okay? I'm just saying. The translations are coming through very weird but i am contractually obligated to read this press release from the board (laughs) however given who inspired this press release i told the powers that be my orwellian overlords that i would gladly read this one you guys may remember this from the last time you were here so here we go we didn't believe this debate deserved its own memo so let us reiterate After some very extensive testing, and after speaking with several of our kaijuologists and megazoologists on the island, we can definitively state that the canine known as Clifford is not a kaiju. (laughs) Let us hope that this finally puts to rest any unnecessary infighting and allows us to move on to more pressing matters concerning the state of our island and the world. May you all find a better way forward. Best regards, the Monster Island Board of Directors. Baurgon friend with Clifford. That is a point against you, Baurgon. Get out of here, Barry. Just shut it off, Jimmy. Shut it off. I still think he could be considered. I'm sorry. I disagree with the board's decision. Well, there's <laughs> been some fighting online about the whole thing because a certain someone decided to bring it up. Was that me? No. Oh, I was going to... It's a guy I used to work with. I'll leave it at that. Somebody you used to know. Yep. All right, so now we move on to... What is it now, Jimmy? You're serious? They're making me read a second one this week? Oh, good Godzilla. All right, fine. 
What is it? The Monster Island Board of Directors would like to extend an exuberant amount of gratitude to everyone in attendance last night at our Gamera King of the Monsters banquet. Oh, great. Not this. Please, not this. Everything went very smoothly with only one very minor hiccup. Uh-huh. I, uh... Might have been that hiccup. We would like to extend our thanks to the security team for making this by far the safest event ever held on the island. Also, a very special thank you must go out to our director of PR, Miss Perkins. Thank you for your hard work and dedication to us and everyone on the island. With only a few loose ends to tie up, we have a feeling this year-long celebration to Gamera, King of the Monsters, is going to be out of this world. Thank you, one and all, for helping us find a better way forward in 2021. Well, that could have been worse. I'll tell you guys about it after the show. Sounds interesting. I only had a minor concussion, just saying. Okay. So, now we move on to the Patreon shoutouts. Go show Eli Harris! Travis Alexander! Michael Hamilton! Bex from Redeemed Otaku! Chris Cookie Otaku! <laughs> Danny Demana! And finally, our newest patron, Damon Noise! <laughs> I am really excited to announce Damon. He surprised me by jumping on to one of the bigger tiers. And I am really excited that he loves the show so much that he is doing that. Thank you once again, Damon. And thank you to all the rest of our patrons. And if you would like to join MIFV Max on the Patreon and get really cool perks like access to bonus blooper audio and behind the scenes blogs and everything like that, go to Patreon and you can get all of that stuff for as little as $3 a month. Also, I'd like to say that as funny as we are on the actual things that everyone gets to hear, we're way more funny on the bloopers because it's more <laughs> of just stuff that comes up off the wall, goofy things. Normally as that as usual, stocks. some of the best material in podcasts doesn't make the cut. Very true. All right. Borrow that grease. Again, Jimmy. <laughs> Shut off that mic. Anyway, before we get completely derailed, and because we're a little bit crunched for time, let's wrap this up. To let everybody know, our next episode is going to be the banned film from Toho, 1974, The Prophecies of Nostradamus. And yes, I have acquired a copy for The Vault. It took a little bit of digging, but I have one. And I will be joined by Tokusatsu scholar and former guest of the podcast, John LeMay. And then the year of Gamera will continue with Gamera versus Gauss, where the Gamera formula is fully solidified and the children come back and are even more precocious. Yay. Don't you mean annoying? Yes. So now, normally this would be the part where I have my guests do their shameless self-promotion, but uh, I don't know if you guys have anything to shamelessly self-promote. I want to self-promote 
Okay, what do you got? Okay, I want to promote dogs over cats because they're just so much better. I am in agreement with the self-promotion. Yeah, I mean... Everyone adopt the dogs, let the cats fall by the wayside. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying go kill them. I'm just saying dogs are better, and I think you should go adopt a dog. Both of ours are adopted. Don't get me wrong. I would love to have... You were adopted? No, the The dogs dogs were (laughs) adopted. (laughs) We adopted Teddy Kong first, and then Bitzilla came along later. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would totally take a puppy, but sometimes it's not an option. So you should go adopt a dog. That's my thing. That's what I'm shamelessly self-promoting is go get a dog. And leave the cats there. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We're also very allergic to them. Yeah, I am not promoting violence against cats, just indifference. (laughs) Listeners, if you would like to send feedback about adopting dogs over cats or... Anything else that we have talked about in this episode, please send us feedback at feedback at the Monster Island Film Vault.com. If you have comments about the dogs versus cats debate, please let me know and I will be sure to pass it along to Joe and Joy. Also, Clifford should be on the island. He was wrongfully denied kaiju status. That might get you banned by the board. Tread lightly, <laughs> good sir. Also, I would love to hear if you've seen any of these movies that I come up with songs with, if you had any ideas or what you thought of my remakes, because that is actually one of the fun things I get to do. Yippee Skippy. (laughs) All right. That's all I have, folks. Yeah, please send your love or hate to the Monster Island Film Vault. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter where our handle is at themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon, The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!